Well, thank you, Joe Buck, for the introduction. And thank you, my friends who are tuning in live today from around not only the United States, but around the country. You, my friends, know by now that this, this podcast is generally pre-recorded. But occasionally, when there is truly a remarkable topic or a remarkable expert, we go live. Our friends at Keeley Companies help us broadcast this thing live so that we can meet you where you are tuning in right away, that you may ask any questions that might be on your mind or your heart. So today, before you ask those questions, I encourage you to grab your favorite Starbucks cup of coffee. I encourage you to grab your favorite Live Inspired journal, your favorite pen, get ready to take some notes. You're going to have a lot of conversations to take inventory of today. I have the opportunity of bringing on someone that I've known of for a long time, respected for a long time, and have recently reconnected with. I was going to tell you about Howard's success story. I was going to tell you about what he did in his life previously, what attracted him to Starbucks, that Starbucks was only a couple dozen stores when he signed on. And by the time he left, it was this global organization with 15,000 stores all around the United States, all around the world. I was going to brag about some of the revenue, some of the profitability, what they did in their outreach in the community. And then I heard a conversation where Howard begged the individual, please don't brag on me. Let's make sure we keep the focus on the individuals in the audience. So today, rather than bragging on you, I thought I would share with you the way Howard introduced himself during that conversation. He said these words, my name is Howard. I was Howard before I joined Starbucks. I was Howard while at Starbucks, and I'm still Howard today. So my friends, today I have the pleasure of bringing on in front of you right now a guy that I think I respect. I know you will when you hear his story. His name is Howard Bihar. Howard, my friend, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. It is an honor. As, as I was bringing you on, there was a guy who decided to start cutting the grass right out of our studio windows. <laughs> so uh, he's tuned in today. He's got a weed whacker in his left hand, a Starbucks, looks like a pike of some type of coffee in his right. So he, he's lined up for today. I know I'm rock, ready to rock and roll today. For our listeners tuning in, if you are live, let us know where you are tuning in from right now and what your favorite thing to order at Starbucks is. We're going to be picking a few lucky winners to receive one of Howard's book as we progress forward. So be engaged today. Share with your friends that you're live with us at the Live Inspire channel. Let us know where you're tuning in from and also what your favorite thing to order at Starbucks is. So, Howard, as we dive into today, rather than me introducing you, I thought it might be wise for you to introduce yourself. If I had met you at a Starbucks and your face looked familiar to me and I said, hey, my name's John O'Leary. You, you look familiar. What do you do? How would you answer that question? I, I would say, uh, John, nice to meet you. My name is Howard. You know, I'm a son of two immigrants uh, that came to this country in the early 1900s, couldn't speak the language, learned the language, met in Seattle and, and got married and raised three children. And I'm, I'm the baby of the family at 77. So I've, I've had a charmed life for a guy without a college education. Barely got out of high school, a couple of years of community college. My best subject actually was beer by the time <laughs> I left community college. But I'm just a human being, actually a human becomingness, you know, trying to live my life uh, serving other people, which I think is the only role any of us have in our lives. You know, some of us read about that in leadership books like the ones that you have written and certainly read, because in reading your books, you're frequently quoting those who've come before you, which I think all great leaders do. But you also refer back frequently to being the son of immigrants. You frequently refer back to some of the heartache they endured, but also the grace and the generosity they modeled. So, so rather than beginning that, you know, in your mid forties, as you step into Starbucks really for the first time, to me, it makes a lot more sense to start where the story begins. Would, would you just share a little bit of, of the journey your father went through as he, uh, as he came over to the United States? My father was 15 years old from Bulgaria, left his family. He was born in 1895, actually. And he left his family in 1911 as a 15, 16-year-old. He had a brother living in Vancouver, British Columbia, who was 20 years older than he was. And he gets on a ship himself. He gets his, makes his way to Vancouver, and they both immigrate to Seattle. And my dad never saw his family again, never talked to his parents again, never saw his other six brothers and sisters again. And... 
<clears throat> figured out a life and it wasn't easy because he like i said he couldn't speak the language just like a lot of people coming into our country right now but he but he he figured out a way you know he worked in the pike place market pushing a cart making you know nickels and dimes and save those nickels and dimes and open up a small mom and pop grocery store in a neighborhood of seattle and that's how we survived you know we never had much you know money but but we always had food on the table. Sometimes it was a little brown or bruised, but we always had food on the table. And you mentioned, you mentioned a ma and pa business. So for it to be a ma and pa business, there must not only be a pa, but also a ma. So would you, there would you is a ma. My mom was uh, actually 13 years younger than my dad and came in 1917 as a nine-year-old or eight-year-old. And she came only, she had other families. She had a big family. She came from a family of 11 children. Now, both of these people, they, they lived on dirt floors where they came from. Their houses were built with, with mud and sticks. Mm. And that's what they always remembered was how difficult it was and how appreciative they were to be able to have the opportunity that they had to live in this country and to do what they, what they did. And they never let me forget it. They survived the depression. They survived the wars. My dad uh, uh, you know, almost lost his his little business because he couldn't pay some of his bills. And my uncle stepped in like all family does and helped him out. And, you know, he tell, told that story a zillion times about how my uncle Izzy mm. gave him 700 bucks and they made the difference in his life. And that, those stories stuck with me. You know, my, I, probably the most important story is, my, you know, my dad, I was, I was just, you know, I was 50, he, my dad was 50 when I was born and uh, I used to go to the store after school every day. That was, you know, what I did after I get out of school, go to the store and, you know, I'd fool around and I, my dad would ask me to do little things to keep me busy. But I was standing by the cash register as my dad was ringing up a, a customer. Now these are the old hand crank cash register. Right. You press, there was buttons across, you press the button, pull the crank. So my dad said, Howard, would you go get me a couple of baskets of strawberries? And so I went in the back and I got a couple of baskets of strawberries. And I brought him up front and he took those strawberries and he put them in the bag of, the, of the, what we call a customer uh, or what he used to call our neighbors and our friends. Yeah. And, and, and I noticed after the customers left that he hadn't rung those strawberries up. And, you know, I was old enough to realize that. And I said, Dad, you forgot to ring the strawberries up. And he said, Howard, not everything we do in life do we need to get paid for. Some things we do because we just care about other people. And I happen to know that these people love fresh fruit. And they can't afford to be buying fresh food right now. So it's just my way of helping them out. And, and I never forgot that story. I didn't understand it, you know, until I was much older. But I always remembered that story. Not everything we need to do in life do we need to get paid for. And that's kind of how I live my life. And actually how I got to Starbucks. You know, I, I had talked with Howard a few times. And Howard Schultz, who is, uh, you know, kind of the modern day founder of Starbucks. He wasn't actually the founder. And a year passed between our first conversations and we got together again by accident and, and he was still looking for somebody to fill a particular role. And he said, well, would you be interested in joining? I said, before you decide that, Howard, or before I decide that, can I work in the company for a week for free? I, I would like to work in the stores for a couple of days, work in the trucks for a few days and work in the roasting plant for a few days. And I did that. He allowed me to do it. And and of course, I didn't, I, didn't try, I, I didn't ask to be paid. I just wanted to get an experience. I wanted him to see me, and I wanted to see what was actually going on. After that first week, I knew it was the right place for me. And so, you know, not everything in life do we need to get paid for. So let, let's let's go along with your timeline. So we, we've moved now through not only the grocery store and yeah. through your beautiful mother and father and through the furniture business and then the travel business. Mm -hmm. Now you're about 44 years of age. You meet another Howard. Yeah. We've got a vision for this, you know, this little coffee shop, seemingly relatively insignificant called Starbucks. Yeah. I'm curious, you're, you've been around the block for a couple of decades professionally. What are you seeing in Starbucks? What attracted you to say, you know what, I could do my own thing, but I think it's here where I really want to uh, do my best work. Yeah, well, I was trying to do my own thing and, and you know, I was looking at businesses to buy. And the, the reason why I got to Starbucks is I found a business to buy and I ended up going to see somebody that was helping Howard out and had a lot of experience. I was trying to buy a franchise for Oregon, Washington, British Columbia. And when I went to meet him, he said to me, he said, what do you want to do something like that for? We need a guy like you right here at Starbucks. So after that week at Starbucks, I, I knew that this was the, this was not about coffee, that it was about people. 
And I just smelled that right away. Like you smell the coffee, I smelled that this was a perfect place for me because my skill sets really relied around relationships, building relationships, maintaining relationships, serving others. I mean, it's what I loved. It's how I lived my life, you know, and I was a, a practitioner of servant leadership long before I came to Starbucks. And so the opportunity to go to a little company, I never thought it was going to be big. I thought maybe we'll have a couple hundred stores, you know, and I was trying to actually escape corporate life. You know, I wasn't, I'd been president of a large land development company that was in a recreational land business. And, and, you know, we had to sell it. It got in trouble. We had to sell it. And so, you know, here was this opportunity to join this small company, non-corporate, you know, I could touch everything. You know, I knew everybody that worked there by name. I knew their families, all those things, and I could make a difference. And that's exactly what happened. And I, I brought with me this idea. I was Howard, you know, just like you said, I was Howard, being Howard, because I'd long ago looked at my values and decided who I was. And so I go there and I, I start preaching the gospel of the fact that we were in the people, we were not in the coffee business serving people, but we were in the people business serving coffee. Sounds like a small play on words, but that really drove this idea that what we are here to do, to serve human beings, to serve the people that worked at Starbucks first and the people we called our customers, those human beings we call our customers. Howard, I'm curious, you're, you're Howard, as you said, and there's another Howard already there organizationally, and they're trying to scale. They've got a couple dozen stores and they have, you know, the other Howard has this grandiose vision of what yeah. Starbucks could and eventually does become. You're mentioning what you saw in them and what you smelt when you walked into the yeah. store and when you yeah. when you met with the, the leadership yeah. team. Most of us who are trying to scale our businesses are looking for top of the class. We're looking for the right lineage of the school they went to. And we're looking for the MBA, of course, behind their name as well. You had none of those things. No. So I'm curious, what did they see in you? Uh, I, you know, that's a that's a great question. I, I mean, I think that it, you know, sometimes people speaking up for you makes a difference. I, I think they saw my humanity, you know, and I, I think they saw my sense of humor. And, and interestingly enough, Howard and I, Howard had a college degree and Howard had been, you know, had worked, been working at Starbucks and was able to buy the companies from company from the founders. But I, before I went to work, I used to go to a Starbucks every day and sit and have a cup of coffee. And I was writing out all the things that I wanted to do, you know, if, if I had my own company. And I had this long list, like one of them on it was everybody gets to vote. I changed that to the people person who sweeps the floor should choose the broom. Uh, everybody gets, you know, everybody gets to participate in the equity of the company. And I had this list of things I want to do. But lo and behold, Howard and I shared almost the identical list, you know, and, uh, and so that's, I think what, I think that's what attracted me to Howard and, and Howard to me. I mean, we did not have a perfect relationship. We had a lot of conflicts, you know, and particularly around people things, but but uh, and we had other conflicts, too. But uh, uh, but, you know, I, I didn't need a job. I was looking for a job. You know, I, I never anything I've ever done in my life had to have a purpose greater than myself. Mm. And so that, that's what I was looking for is to be able to connect to something greater than myself. And and Howard allowed me to do that. And he put up with me. So, Howard Bihar, I have been working as a speaker and coach and author in this in this industry now for 20 years. And my first office was at a Starbucks. They did not charge me rent. Uh, they yeah. grossly underpaid me for the Wi-Fi signal and for my one small coffee that I, I would get every day, usually a blueberry muffin a couple hours later. You, my only experience with Starbucks was at, you know, it's a large global entity. You saw it from the ground floor grow into that. I'm, always, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by the humanity of that story. And I have a picture today of three of the individuals that helped imagine and then envision and then wow. share the vision of what this could become. And so I'd like you to share with us who these three individuals in that picture are and how the three of them work together to create the Starbucks that we know and love today. I'm blown away that you have this photograph. Uh, so uh, very far right is Howard Schultz, who was at that time, he was 33 years old. In the middle was a guy named Oren Smith, who at that time was 45 years old or 46 years old. And then the picture on the left is me. And I just got to tell you, you know, looking at that picture brings tears to my eyes. I love those three guys. I mean, we were the perfect team together. We were, we were very different, 
Oren was kind of, they called Oren the tortoise. Slow, methodical, but always got it done. You know, you go into Oren's office and you talk about something and he might hear back a week later, you know, or whatever it was, whether he agreed with you or not. And Howard and I were two emotional guys. Howard was, you know, raised in a very poor family in Canarsie, New York, outside of Brooklyn, and never had had much. And Howard was a street fighter. I mean, you know, if you took a dime off of Howard's desk without asking, he'd break your hand, you know. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you came to Howard and said, Howard, I'm having trouble with something, he would do anything to help you, anything to help you. And uh, and so we just fit together. It was like that basketball team. We always knew where the other person was on the court. And we never had to look. You know, and every Monday night we would get together and we'd talk about what was going on in the business. Some weekend, we, on Monday nights we'd cry, some Monday nights we'd celebrate, but we always were together talking about what was going on, what was going on in our lives. And we built a strong relationship. Any one of the two of us together would have been a disaster, right? But the three of us together were magic. And, and that's the way it was. So we're the conversation's rich and it's bringing in a whole lot of comments from the community like John Daly, Mary Teresa and Melissa. There's one question though I want to share from my friend David Fordenberry who works at a wonderful organization called UCB. And the question is this. Howard, how did you react and manage to others which I am sure you encountered during your time at Starbucks that thought the opposite was true? That you are indeed in the coffee business serving people, not in the people business serving coffee. How would you react to those who felt the exact opposite was true, Howard? Well, my job was, first of all, to try to convince them that it was about the people. And I tried to prove it by how I acted and what I did and how I lived my life and what a difference that made in the people in the organization. Now, not everybody got it. I, I'm first one to admit, uh, if they treated people well, they didn't have to you know, I didn't have to subscribe to the words that I said, as long as they treated their people with respect and dignity. But if they didn't do that, if they if they really weren't that kind of human being, if they really were thinking mostly about themselves, then then they didn't really have a place at Starbucks. And and you know, the most interesting thing about Starbucks is, as Jim Collins says in his book Good to Great Built the La two books Good to Great Built the Last, yeah. he you know he talks about people, uh, the organization. Uh, rejecting uh, the people that didn't fit like a virus, like a bad virus. And that's kind of what happened at Starbucks. I don't care what your position was at Starbucks. Uh, it didn't make any difference. If you didn't get understand that it was about our people, that you didn't you didn't have to say it was we weren't in the coffee business. I mean, you could we were in the coffee business. Okay, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not naive. I know we were selling coffee, but <laughs> but if you if you didn't treat people with respect and dignity, then you had no place there. And, you know, we would love to, no matter who you were, I always thought no matter how people, what people did, how they acted, they were still human beings and deserved respect. And, and I tried to love them as much going out the out of the company as I loved them coming into the company. And, you know, were we perfect? No, we weren't. And I'm sure today at Starbucks, there are people that don't understand that it's about people. It's about, it's about serving others, not being served by others. Mm. So, but we just we just didn't have room for people that that treated people disrespectfully. We had room. For, I mean, and I, and I wasn't going to argue about semantics. I I looked at people's actions. So let's talk about both semantics and action. You you mentioned a moment ago Jim Collins, and I know you brought him into Starbucks a couple times to get yeah. clear on who you are, yeah. why you are, and ultimately what success looks like going forward. You also designed with Jim and many others help clarity around your mission. And you mentioned in this mission statement, this idea of nurturing and inspiring the human spirit, which right. for those who don't know really what drives the leaders at Starbucks and, Starbucks and the partners that serve the coffee, what it is ultimately is nurturing and inspiring human spirit, which is so attractive. It's so good. So what, what did that statement mean and how do you think it has influenced your success? There's no question. It meant everything. We did. We were struggling. We had about 200 stores and, you know, what happens is you're growing, you start, you know, there's lots of excitement around the growth. And then all of a sudden the hard work begins, you know, you're doing stuff, you're, you're working endless hours, you're traveling all the time, you're doing always your issues, raising money, you know, you know, all this stuff. And, and so that it wears you down a little bit, you can get tired, but you never get burned out because you always are trying to focus on the greater purpose, but we were losing sight of a greater purpose. And it was starting to be about opening stores. And uh, we had a woman that worked at Starbucks, her name was, uh, uh, um, 
she's oh, I forgot. Sorry, I forgot the, forgot her name. But anyway, uh, she she was kind of like a canary in the oh Jennifer Caraman is her name. She was yeah. like the canary in the mine shaft, and she was always the one that said something's off. But she came in my office one day and said something's off, and you know that's when we first got Jim Collins. We brought Jim Collins in. It was actually Warren Smith that knew Jim Collins, and he didn't. The books weren't out yet. He was just this young professor at Stanford, but he'd heard about him and heard him speak, and so he came in and he worked with us to develop this what he calls a BHAG, big hairy audacious goal, it's something you kind of never achieve, and but you're always driving towards it. So we worked on that. It wasn't just the officers; it was officers, directors, store managers, baristas. Everybody got to participate in this thing. It took us six months to kind of get the words right because. You know, there was all the all there were the people that wanted to talk about the business side of it. Yes. We we're going to have lots of stories, all that kind of stuff. And I remember when those words were finally down on a piece of paper. And it, here's the total totality of it: uh, <clears throat> we want to be one of the most well-known and respected organizations in the world. Now, remember, we had 200 stores. That was a big dream in the world, really, <laughs> right? One of the well, most well-known and respected organizations in the world, known for nurturing and inspiring the human spirit. Not a word about coffee, not a word about profits, not a word about any of that stuff. And, you know, I connected so deeply with nurturing and inspiring the human spirit. I had had my own personal mission statement for a long time, and I just said, that's me. I'm, I'm, at that time, I was probably about 47 years old. And I changed my mission statement. And now my mission statement basically plagiarizes that. But it has all the meaning for me. Every day, every day, I want to nurture and inspire the human spirit, beginning with myself first and then for others. Because what I've learned at being 77 years old, if you're not okay with you, it's very difficult to help somebody else. And so that statement has driven the company. I Really, I cannot tell you how important that statement was and how it continues to be important. And the same statement that I, I created that I never thought would last, that we were not in the coffee business serving, but we're serving people but in the people business serving coffee those two statements have been drivers you sound it sounds like just two sentences but they're yep. so important they gave us greater purpose and whenever we got off track we always came back to those things you are a voracious note writer I, i've read that you know when you only have 200 stores it's work but it can be easily done when you have uh, 15,000 stores around the world it becomes far more challenging at one point, Howard, before you retired, you were writing, if I, if I got this right, 2,500 notes a month to your partners, to your <laughs> colleagues in the field, making sure that they felt appreciated, they felt loved, they felt seen. Yeah. Talk about why that mattered. Because it, it says you care, that you took the time. I didn't know a lot of the people. I was basically sending out birthday and company anniversary cards. And I had cards, new cards printed every year with some kind of coffee cup on the front. And... and and some kind of saying inside. And then I would write a personal note. Now, the ones I knew I could write a little more personal, but I always wrote something. And I hand signed all of those. I used to take boxes of cards on airplanes with me and I had these FedEx envelopes. I'd send them back to my assistant and she would take those, sort them out and then she would mail them out. And you know, it was the most amazing thing. It's the little stuff that matters yeah. in life. It's walking down the hallway, saying hi. It's walking down the street, picking up a piece of paper saying hello to the person that's coming in front of you, even if they don't say hello back, fine, no problem. But, you know, just just reaching out, always reaching out. And that's what I thought was important. And I wanted I wanted people to know that I cared. It wasn't mm -hmm. about making money. It was about caring about people. I knew that we would, you know, we would make money. I mean, it was sometimes it was tougher than other times. But but uh, but I wanted to show no. I wanted people to know I care. What's so amazing. I've been retired from Starbucks for 10 years. <clears throat> There are still people that have saved those cards that may have got over the period of time I was there, maybe 30 or 40 cards from me and have every one of them. It's, it's amazing how the little things matter. So I'm going to play off of that immediately because what you're talking about is, well, you know, some people are thinking right now, Howard, of course they saved the card. The president is writing them a letter that means a lot. I'm only this or I'm just that. And before you and I hit record and before we started broadcasting this conversation, we talked about the need to remind people that they are not just anything, no. that their role in life, regardless of what that role might be, has a profound effect on those they are called to serve. And I've heard from my friend Mirren Oka, who you and I know and love well, Mirren on her podcast, on our conversation with you, shared the story of a gentleman named Jim 
and his love of both coffee and blueberry muffin muffins from Starbucks and what just a few baristas did for him and the impact it had on him. Would, would you share for our listeners today who might be staying at home with their kids or they might be retired or they might be just students or they might be just exhausted that they, uh, they aren't just anything except they're just change agents for good around them. So share the story of these baristas and what they did. Yeah, sure. So uh, this was a guy named Jim and he was uh, in a nursing home across the street of one, from one of our stores in Santa Monica, California. And every day, he, Jim was in his 80s, and every day he would come into our store and he'd order a short drip coffee and a blueberry muffin, come in about two o'clock. And he would, you know, he would sit there and he would talk to the baristas. And, you know, he wasn't a customer. He was their friend and they were his friends. And, and they all loved him. I mean, and just as much as he loved them, you know, and he was an ex-football player. And he, they'd, he'd come in and he's always wanted to talk football and they would, every day when they gave him his blueberry muffin or his cup, the bar, one of the barishas would write a note on either the cup or the bag, the little bag. And he might say, hey, Jim, we love you. Or Jim, the Steelers suck. He's a big <laughs> Steelers fan, you know. And he would laugh. And, and that went on for a couple of years. And, uh, and finally, one day, Jim, to, at 2 o'clock comes, no Jim. 3 o'clock comes, no Jim. 4 o'clock comes, no Jim. And finally, one of the bar aces took a blueberry. You know, they always saved him a muffin because sometimes by 2 o'clock we were out. And they always saved him one. So he took the short drip and the blueberry muffin across the street to the nursing home and walked in the front door and went up to the receptionist and said, hey, I've got Jim's muffin and his coffee. Where is he? And the woman just looked at him and, and a tear came down her eye and she said, I'm sorry to tell you, but Jim passed away last night in his sleep. And of course, the people at Starbucks were devastated. You know, they, they, you know, it's it was a human being. It wasn't a customer. I hate that word customer. You know, customer is like a person's got a dollar bill pasted to their forehead, and if you just say something, you'll get that dollar bill. Human right. being, you don't care whether they got a dollar in their pocket. You're still there to serve them in some way or another. So anyway, a day later, one of Jim's children came into the store, Jim's daughter, and went to t talk to the store manager and said, you know, Jim loved all you guys. Uh, you know, the funeral's tomorrow, and I know he would really appreciate it if you could all be there tomorrow. I know it's difficult, but maybe you could find a way. And the store manager with that blinking said, of course, and mm -hmm. found the replacements to run the store while they were gone. It was a few hours. And so they all show up at the, at the, uh, at the uh, uh, mortuary or wherever they're having the service. And they walk in the front, and here are three huge round tables. You know those big banquet tables? When you're going to have a dinner at a banquet, they seat about 10 people yes. in a round. And on each of those tables were almost all of the bags and the cups that had sayings on that the baristas wrote to Jim. Mm. It was incredible. I mean, they were blown away. They had no idea Jim was saving those around pot and those were. But what, what an example of how the little things in life can really make a difference in another human being's life. See, what they did for Jim was make a connection with these people. And they made him feel like he was a valued human being, that he was Jim and worthy of respect and dignity and love and caring. Mm. And, you know, and I, I have never forgot that story. And it, it's amazing how we forget that, you know, we forget that it's 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 not why, you know, it's not yelling. I love you from the back door of the house when you leave your home in the morning. But going up to your significant other spouse or whatever and looking them in the face and grabbing them by the shoulders and a peck on the cheek or whatever you whatever you do and say, honey, I love you. I'll see you later. You know, it's the little things that matter. Just so you know, the comments coming in from our friends who are with us live today as we stream a part of this conversation. Tears. Tears. Wow. <laughs> Tearing up over this story about Jim. It's just great stuff. It's all about the little things. It's all about the little things. Uh, Katrina says this, you never, ever know the impact that you have on a person. Pat says this, amazing story, so inspiring. And then we, we can keep going, but I'll end with this one. It's from my friend, Mary Teresa, who says, I was crying at the delivery. You are killing me with compassion this morning. Kindness, question mark, connects. We all matter. We all matter. In a marketplace, I think too frequently, Howard, where we forget it. Uh, a barista who does her or his or their job extraordinarily well reminds us that we aren't a customer or a human being. And our life has dignity as well. That, that story, the first time I heard you share it, man, I wept like a baby. <laughs> and I, I, then I asked myself afterwards, why? 
Like, is it his delivery? Is it poor Jim not having the, enough visitors? And it's that one interaction. And I think most stories that move us, move us for very personal reasons. What is most yeah. personal is also most universal. And, and for me, as a little boy going through the fire, I had just a janitor who came into my life every single day and would put the headset on me and let me listen to music while he cleaned my room well. And then I had just a CNA who would untie me from the bed and carry me back to the bandage change. And then I had just some RNs who did, would do the bandage change well. And I had all these just people who never, ever felt like they were just anything other than changing someone's life for good. So you remind us that regardless of our job title, that you have this unique ability, regardless of your color of skin, regardless of your background, regardless of how much you get paid or don't get paid, that your life can truly uplift another human being. So, man, it, it is just an awesome story. I want to thank you for sharing it. I also understand that you are a quote guy, that you got a whole bunch of quotes, or at least you used to behind your office, most of them yeah. framed with little black frames. Yeah. I wrote down about a, about 36 of them, but today I'm only going to share a few with our friends. The first one is this. This one's so good because I still don't have an answer for it, but it, it is the right thing to ask. Here it is. If there was no praise nor criticism in the world, who would you be? So I'll say it again, and then I'd like you to tell me why you hung this quote up. If there was no praise nor criticism in the world, who would you be? Isn't that a one? I love that quote, you know? Mm. And uh, it's, it's the idea of figuring out who you are, right? Not who other people think you are or say you are, but coming to grips with the real you. And that requires some introspection. You know, and I, that quote became so important to me because when I was in younger days, I had, you know, I had some coaching that I had to change who I was. It wasn't like they were asking me to change the color of my slacks or my shoes. They're asking me to change Howard. The problem was I didn't really know who Howard was. Mm. And I had to do the work to determine who Howard was by, by getting my core values, eight to 10 core values, my personal mission statement, which we had over, over actually almost, God, I can't believe it's been about 50 years since I first started doing it and, and how I live my life. And that's it. It's, it's determining who you are and don't let others define you. Mm. Let, let me just give folks who are listening in right now, whether live through social media, and I'm sure they are sharing right now with other other friends. So many more can be impacted through your wisdom and, and experiences, but also the power of slowing down and not just hearing someone else's story and hearing someone else's mission, but designing their own, taking yeah. that worthy time for themselves. And so I, I'd like to share with you mine. I'll invite Howard in a moment to share his and then and then encourage you to design yours at the end of this program today. My mission statement, the reason I get out of bed early and stay up late with a goofy grin on my face all day long, and I've been doing this now for almost a decade, I choose to thrive. That's where my mission begins. I choose to thrive because for me, God demands it. My family deserves it. The world is starved for it. Let's roll. No excuses. Uh, that's not about speaking. It's not about coaching. It's not about writing. It's not about podcasts. It's not about a social platform. It's not about being a better spouse, not about being a better leader, a better child of God. It's about all these things, as Howard would say, one hat, that you understand what it is for you and you wear it well. Unapologetically, you wear it well. Right. So I know why I choose to thrive every day. And Howard, would you share yours? And then- uh, Well, and then I did already as to, uh, as to every day I want to nurture and inspire the human spirit, the unity with myself first and then for others. And that's how I live my life. I, I, I try to do something every day that serves another human being. A lot of times it's just picking up a piece of paper off the street, bending over and showing my big butt, you know, and people are wanting to do that guy just get a dollar bill, but picking up garbage off the street and putting it in the trash can. You know, I live in Seattle, so there's an endless supply of inventory to pick up. And that's, I always have a job to do, but, but it just, those, those are the things that just make a difference. You know, it's, I live, I have what I call my six P's and I'll give them to you here real quickly. Uh, the first P is purpose. Everything I do in life has to have a purpose greater than myself. It has to be bigger than me. It's not about me. It's about something bigger than me. Mm. And the second P is if I have a purpose greater than myself, then I darn well better be passionate about it. You know, if picking up, I'm passionate about picking up pieces of paper. I'm passionate about serving other people. I'm passionate about uh, 
you know, trying to help other human beings. So and I scream it from the highest mountaintops. That's why I'm so passionate about servant leadership. The third P is persistence. You know, if there was one word that would describe every entrepreneur that I've ever met, and Howard Schultz had it in spades, is persistence. They don't know from no. You know, they, it, they, they when they hit a rock in the river, they go through it, under it, over it, around it, or they blow it up to get it out of the way. And persistence matters in life because we're all going to be traveling down the rivers of our lives. And sometimes we're going to know where the rock is because somebody told us to watch out for it. Sometimes they tell us to watch out for it and we ignore them and hit it anyway. And then, um, then, so, you know, it's persistence pays. The fourth P is patience. Now you'd think patience and persistence are the opposite of each other, but they're not. You have to be patiently persistent, mm. right? It, it's because the mo we get impatient. We want things now. We want it today, but not everything comes today. Sometimes it takes a little time to get things done. It took you a while to get healed, didn't it? And you had to stay with it. Yeah, you, you had to be persistently patient, even though you may not have wanted to be. But and so patience matters in this world. And uh, it's when you're leading other people, you got to be patient. It's not patient. Not everybody comes along at the same time frame that you do. And you have to give it the time and to to uh, to let it grab hold. And then the fifth P is performance. Look, like it or not, in this life we live in, performance matters. And performance matters in our work. Performance matters with our kids. If you commit to go to a soccer game, then you better show up at the soccer game, or you better tell your kid why you're not going to be there, and 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 apologize like hell. And if you promise the next time, you better be there. Performance matters when. Your job is to take out the garbage in the house. Then take out the garbage. You shouldn't have to be reminded to take out the garbage. Now, sometimes I forget, and I, I hear that yell from across. Says, "Hey, Howard!" <laughs> I know I forgot the garbage. You know, and uh, so I take it out. And I, luckily, my wife forgives me. But performance matters. Performance matters at work. If you commit to your to your organization that you're working on to get something done, then you better get it done, or you better tell people that you're working with why you're not going to get it done. And so, you know, performance matters in our marriages. It happens with our, it matters with our families. It matters at our work. It matters in life. And the most important person we need to perform for is not somebody else. It's ourselves. I have this little habit, a game I play with myself. Every night before I go to bed, I look in the mirror and say, Howard, how did you do today? That's all I ask. Howard, how did you do today? Sometimes I smile. Sometimes eh, I'm not so happy with myself. But it's against my core values and my mission statement. That's all. It's pretty simple, you know. And uh, so, you know, performance matters. And then the most important P, the most single most important P is people. Everything we do is about serving people. No matter if you're the, a widget maker, just a widget maker, right, that makes widgets that go into a printing press, the printing press gets sold to a publishing company, the publishing company produces a magazine or newspaper that gets delivered to somebody's home to inform or entertain them. The mm. widget maker is making a difference in somebody else's life. They're serving somebody else. And it's hard for us sometimes to make that connection. But that connection is really important. There's no job that you have that isn't about serving another human being. And it's up to us to define how it gets to that. And because everything does. And when we do that, we never get burned out. We may get tired, you know, and because we all need to rest and, and to rejuvenate. But you never get burned out when you're serving somebody else. Well, I think one way to serve somebody else is to see them as a human being. And I think that's what the second quote that you have hanging up on the wall might remind you of and ought to remind the rest of us of. So I, I love this one, Howard. I'm going to start living by it. The person who sweeps the floor should pick the broom. The person who sweeps the floor should pick the broom. What does that mean? Well, you know, it kind of comes from this place. Remember when I said that I thought everybody should get to vote in the company, that we go out and we hire great people right or or we have children you know whatever is it the human beings and but let's put it in the context of business we hire these great people and the first thing we do we bring them into the organization we give them the handbook and in the handbook it says everything they can't shouldn't do under threat if they do it they'll be out of here right, right. instead of giving the person the handbook or sitting them down and saying hey john here's here's why we hired you we like you as a human being because that's most important. And we think you understand the importance of people and organization. But John, here is your primary role. Your job is to clean, make sure the floors are always clean because the reason why is our customers like to come in when the place is clean. So John, here's a broom that we have. 
But at any time you think that you could find a better broom, we want you to tell us about it and we'll get you one. See, the issue in most companies is the purchasing department determines what broom that John is going to use. And we don't listen to John because, you know, John gets excited one day. He comes into your office and he's so excited he can hardly stand it. Then he says, Howard, I was on the Internet the other night and I found the perfect broom to use. I think I can increase my floor sweeping productivity by 10 percent and the floors will be even shinier than they are now. You know how many bosses will just look at them and roll their eyes and say, can't you see I'm busy? You're just a sweeper of floors. And that's what happens. And, and so the person who sweeps the floor basically just says, honor your people. Mm. They're smarter than you think you are. they are. Give them the opportunity to make mistakes. Give them the opportunity to contribute, and you'll be shocked at what they can do. It's so good, Howard. And, I, and I'm, I'm tracking not only what you're saying, but some of the comments flowing in from social media. There are hearts. There is love coming your way. There's appreciation. There's also a third quote that I believe we need to be reminded of in the world that you and I and everyone else tuning in today might find themselves living in. Because indifference is ultimately what we are fighting up against. The indifference, not not a political enemy, not an enemy out there, not the boogeyman. It is indifference. So the third quote is this, the enemy of life is indifference. Yeah, by the way, that's not my quote. That is a quote by cool. uh, uh, a Holocaust survivor. And I'm yeah, not sure. Anyway, well, that is, he. I went to hear him speak. See, that's the way I learned. These quotes are my, this is how I learned. I absorbed these things. And he said, you know, the enemy is life of life is indifference. It's walking up the street, walking by somebody that's got a cup out, just walking by, not whether you put something in the cup, but just honor it, say hi. Yeah. You know, how are you doing today? I'm sorry I can't give you anything today, but maybe another day. But it's being indifferent to the pain and suffering of others, being indifferent to other people's difficulties in life. And, and that was truly the enemy of life. And, and when you look at the world in which we live, it truly is. You know, we, we don't, we, the people across the world, we, we just don't even think about their pain, their suffering. We, the people in our neighborhoods, we don't think about their pain, their suffering. And it's, it's not being indifferent to it, but actually caring enough to, to be compassionate, to caring and do whatever you can do. We, none of us by ourselves can, can you know, uh, fix the world's problems, but together we can. Mm. So I'm seeing a comment from Wayne Connell that, and Wayne's a great friend of mine who lives out in Colorado, who uh, reminds us, let's not forget the individuals today who still feel isolated, who are still living life by themselves, either physically or in other ways. But it ties into a question from another one of our friends named Matt Immersion. Matt's a phenomenal speaker and author. And his question to you is this, Howard. He wants to know that, hey, since Starbucks has started scaling up the technology, you can place your order before you get there. It's, it's at the stand before you, know, before you even walk in. You grab it, go, easy. How are you planning on humanizing this experience going forward? And I, I recognize you're not actively engaged right now with the, uh, the tactics of Starbucks, but do you see the humanization of... Yeah. I think there's, ro there's room for both. And humanization doesn't just mean that you're able to sit down. Humanization also means how you're served. This idea that it's you're not just shoving a cup of coffee across the counter, but you're, you're actually having a, a 10 second conversation. I used to tell our people that they were social workers and they had 10 seconds to determine where that person was in front of them, how mm. they were feeling about their day, and then responding accordingly to what they felt, you know, with those little antenna that stick up out of our head. They got their eyes, they got their ears, they got these antenna that we don't see, but they're there being in tune with the other person. And so you have to do both. I don't think Starbucks will move, ever move away from having, you know, uh, places to sit and, and to enjoy. But I think there's also room for the other side of that. For, you know, if you're living in Manhattan and, and you're running 10 minutes late and you want, a, you want a great latte or a cup of coffee that you can place your order on, on your cell phone and you walk in, boom, you're out. I mean, we've always had that. But yep. I think it's both. It's not either or. It's the end that makes the sense here. That's so good. You, you used a word that I love because I think it's where we're going to wrap up our formal interview. You used the word social worker. I wanted our team, I wanted our people to be reminded that they were like social workers. They had 10 seconds to identify the human being in front of them. So it reminds me of someone that you know and you love and that you respect every day of your life. And I'm going to show you a picture of her right now. This took a little bit more digging, but I found it, Howard. Oh so I'd like you to tell our viewers right now who is pictured in that beautiful uh blouse right next to you in that picture is that one gorgeous lady or not that's my wife lynn 
and talking about an incredible human being. Lynn is an oncology, so a retired oncology social work. She got her PhD in social work and taught for a while. And she's been serving others her whole life. And the others that have, are sick or dying of cancer and serving their families. And, uh, you know, Lynn has taught me more about life than any other human being, without a, without a doubt. And, you know, that, you know, we've been married for 44 years. Not a perfect trip, but, but, but a wonderful trip. We were just taught, we were laying in bed talking about it last night. How the hell did we get, how did we get to 44 years? How did we make it, you know? And, you know, we just forgave each other along the way, and we laughed at each other's jokes, and that's holds true today. Talk about the, and I'm going to mi possibly mispronounce the, the last name here, but it will help me out with it, the Carol Lamar Scholars Program. What is Holy that? mackerel. You, John, you're incredible. Well, so Lynn, when she went to the University of Washington, and she got, uh, she, want, she was getting her uh, master's in social work, and she noticed that there wasn't a, a clinical program at the University of Washington. It was basically, uh, you know, social workers to, to worked in communities, but there was no program for clinical workers that worked in hospitals. And so she decided that she wanted to develop, help develop that program. And so we had some resources. And so we gave some money, but the money was to go towards developing this program. And so now she's had 120 students graduate with a master's degree in clinical social work from this program. And primarily, most of them have gone into the uh, uh, hospice and, or, or cancer uh, um, parts of the hospitals to work with people that are dying or, uh, yeah. uh, or, or have cancer. And so that was been her program. It's incredible what she's accomplished. And, you know, the goal is to have 500 students go through this program. And that's a lot. And it's one of the most well-known and respected programs in clinical social work in the country, all because of her. She did it. I mean, she didn't do it. It was the other people that worked with her. But, uh, oh, I see an MSW here, uh, you know, uh, Mary Teresa. Uh, anyway, yeah, and so that's what she did. And it's amazing. I'm blown away by what she's accomplished. I've never been as good as she is, nor as smart as she is, you know, period. Jandra Long wanted to not only let you know that she is not just anything, she is a registered nurse making a mighty difference in the marketplace, but she also wanted to thank you because every time she goes through a Starbucks drive-thru, although the line moves relatively quickly, they always take just a moment to make sure that they, uh, that they make sure she feels heard and seen. So the, the desire you had to nurture and nourish human beings continues long after you've left Starbucks. It's an incredible success story. It's all, and people always ask me, well, you must've had fantastic training programs. I said, we don't train people. We educate and develop human beings. You train pets, you know, <laughs> and uh, and that's what we try to do is educate and develop. Now, most, you know, you had to have some desires to be a good human being coming into Starbucks. Not everybody came with the same set of people skills, we, but we helped them out. We had programs that we used to help and develop their skills in that area. One was called Star Skills, how to live and work together. And that, that that education development program, they was they were able to use it at home or at work. Mm. And it's still, I don't think they still call it the same thing today, but that was a driving force with inside of Starbucks. Made all the difference in the world. That's what why Starbucks is successful was not Howard, Warren, and Howard, or they call this H2O. Yep. It was the people of Starbucks that made the difference. And we and what we Howard, Warren, and Howard did was make it possible for the people to live their lives fully, to be honored, to be treated with respect and dignity, to be rewarded for their work, to not try to do it on their backs, but with them. And that's what made the difference. And the people of Starbucks built the business, not us. Our BR, the, the last question I ask you today before we shift gears into the final seven, we call them the Live Inspired Seven, is this. You have seen a great deal of life play out in your 77 years, man, you've been on top of the world. You've also felt as if you were buried by it. What would you say to someone right now who is not opening their 15,000th store, does not exactly feel like they've got life grabbed by the horns and they've got it all figured out, but they feel they feel beat down and they're wondering how they ought to take the next right step forward and they don't feel maybe like their life has value. What would you say to them right now who might be struggling in their next step all along the journey? Well, I, I really believe with all my heart that you need to work on defining who you are. 
So you have to identify what, why you are who you are. What are your core values? What are your eight to 10 things that really matter in your life? Right? And then you take those core values and you write a sentence or two about how those core values inform your actions and decisions in your life because otherwise they're just words. And if you don't write them down, right, then you're not, then you're just wishes, hopes, and dreams. Mm. You got to write them down because you got to be able to look at them all the time to remind yourself. And then the second thing you need to do is to create a mission statement for yourself, something that drives you. You see it, you know, there's this old quote, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And the most important thing to know about where you're going is who you are, because who you are defines where you go and what you want to do. And then, and then the third thing to do is to, uh, is to write a paragraph or some sentences like I call my six Ps about how you want to live your life. You see, once you have that in place, right, it's core to, to living. And it makes all the difference. And what happens to us is we lose sight of why we're here. See, when you're totally focused inward on self, right? Then you're, you know, when things are going right, you're always in pain. But if you're focused on helping others, right? Then even the smallest things put a smile on your face, right? And, and, and you know, I did something today. And that's how you create value for yourself. And over time, those things build on yourself. You do one little thing a day, yeah. one little tiny thing a day. Pick up a piece of paper and then smile at yourself that you put that in the garbage, you know, off the street. You know, say hello to somebody every day, you know, somebody you don't know, you know, and, you know, contribute to somebody else's life in a small, minuscule way. And you'll be surprised how that will give you the energy to move forward. And then another thing that's really important, you know, it really is important that you kind of create a little plan for yourself. So Lynn and I, since we've been married, we have, we've had this, what we call this planning session. We're kind of lazy, been lazy at it lately, but but we would go away for a weekend and we'd have a planning session and it was called the Bihar family retreat, you know, and we would take, you know, the white paper that has a sticky on the top and you write on it and you go put it on the wall and it sticks to the wall. And we would create uh, uh, headings, spirituality, material, uh, uh, marriage, children, family, uh, 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 career. We used to call career. Now we call life's work. Um, um, uh, I forget the all the headings we had, but we had about eight or nine headings. And then we would go away and we would write up under each of those headings what our goals were for the next three to five years. And then we'd come back and present to each other. Now, you know, uh, sometimes there could be conflicts in there. Lynn wanted to get her PhD. I was working, you know, you know, and she wasn't going to be making, bringing in any money at the time. And at that time I didn't have, we didn't have much. And, so we had to figure out how to live without her income. And so we had to, we solved that conflict in those planning sessions, how we were going to do. When I was traveling a lot, you know, she figured out how she was going to live without me being home a lot, not being mad all the time when I was gone, you know. And so we'd have a plan for our lives. We had a plan for our marriage, how we were going to make our marriage better. You know, and, and so, you know, it's worthwhile to just, you don't have to make it complex. You don't have to achieve everything that's on that plan, but at least have some goals that you set out for yourself, some things you want to do for yourself. And sometimes it's a material goal. I always wanted a Ferrari. So I had that up there, you know, on one of my material goals for myself. And remember, you're two individuals, so you might have some differing goals. And, but it, it's so important for you in a marriage to understand where the other person is. And we did it with our children. Hey, you want to try something really fun, do it with your children someday. You'll be blown away by what they contribute and what you learn about them. But... Uh, you know, and uh, I, at the end of the day, I went and drove a Ferrari and said, it drives like a truck. I don't want one of these, but, <laughs> but, but anyway, so, you know, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. So know who you are, what your values are, how those values inform the decisions and actions you make in your life, uh, a personal mission statement. Remember, none of this is written in stone. You write it in pencil. You can change anything at any time That's and right. then create a little plan for yourself. It takes some work and some time, but it's amazing what, what it'll do for you. So Howard, we have bumped up against the uh, the hour that we have enlisted together. So we're going to race through the final questions. They are called the Live Inspired Seven. They're brought to you today by our friends at Keeley Companies. The very first question for my friend Howard Bihar is this: Howard, what is the most impactful book you have ever read? Oh God, I've read a lot of great books. Um, well, probably the most recent one was The Boys in the Boat. 
And The Boys in the Boat is a story uh, from uh, uh, the Nazi Germany era when, when a, a crew, you know, uh, crew racing was big in Seattle at the University of Washington. And eight guys from small towns around, around the state of Washington who never thought could, see, could, could succeed go to Nazi Germany and win. And it's an amazing story. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's about what can happen, right? And when you're committed to doing something. Together. Together. So that, what, yeah. what a beautiful message, in particular yeah. during the season, we find ourselves having this conversation. Yeah. Question number two is what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy sweeping that grocery store that you wish you exhibited as beautifully today? Oh, God, I think it would be um, less serious, you know, when you're a little boy, it kind of is, is so free flowing. You know, I never worried about anything, you know, now I, you know, I worry about my grandchildren, I worry about my dogs, you know, and uh, as you get later on in life, you start to say, am I doing everything I want to be doing, you know, yeah. in those days, it's just, you know, you're just going. <laughs> Howard, if your home caught fire, Lynn is out safe, your animals, your pets are out safely, your children and grandchildren are all out safe but you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item that really matters to you. What's the one thing you come out safely with? God, I've never had that question asked before. Um, I think it would be my photographs, my past of our family. It would be those things because you know, I, I would never want to lose those memories. And even though they're in your brain, it's nice to be able to look at those, but I think it would be those things. If you could sit on a bench, Maybe the photographs are to your left, but you are now seated on this bench on a gorgeous Seattle day, no rain, gorgeous Seattle day. And you have an opportunity to visit with, with anyone living or dead. Who do you want to be seated next to? Desmond Tutu. Why, you know, anyone in the world and you choose Desmond Tutu. Now, because why? I met him and he, you walk into a room when, he, when he's in a room and you have never felt energy like his energy. He was about 80 years old, and I, I happened to go to hear him speak, but I was walking, it was at a church, at a Catholic church, and I walked in into this big room in the Catholic church, and it, it was nobody in there but this little old man sitting at a table, you know, black man sitting at a table, and I knew right away who he was, and so I went up to him, and I put on my Santa, I, I said, hello, Mr. Tutu, I am, my name is Howard Behar, I'm so glad to, to see you here, and thank you for coming to speak to us. He jumped up out of that chair, like he was on springs. <laughs> Howard, God, so great to meet you too. I'm glad you're here too. Let's talk. Right? And I have so, I would have so much to learn from him. Well, there's around faith, around showing up, around vibrancy, around caring about the person in front of you and around finishing strong. Yeah. You know, I, I love the idea of finishing across the tape, whatever year you may hit that tape with your shoulders. Yeah back with a smile on your yeah. face. And yeah. one of the things I understand about Desmond Tutu is he did exactly that. Yeah. Exactly. What, what is the best advice that whether it came from him or your parents or some other mentor, what's the best advice you've ever received? Um, you're capable. Two words. You are capable. You know, and there was a time in my life that I didn't believe that. My mm. mother in her, in her uh, uh, desire to take pressure off of me, she used to say to me, Howard, not everybody can be or not everybody can do. And I internalized that as I was not capable. She was not trying to be mean. She was just trying to, you know, take pressure off, off, off of me. And so I, how I internalized that was that I wasn't capable. And it took me a long time to understand that I was capable. And it was somebody that kept telling me that I was. And they were right, I was. You are capable. And the question now for you at age 77 is directed toward yourself at age 20. What would you like to whisper back into his ears? If you could whisper any advice 57 years ago into your own consciousness, what advice would you like to give yourself? Yeah. Figure out who you are early hmm. and, and focus on that. And it's so important to write it down and to create a little plan for your life. You know, I, I was, I was older than I was about 27 when I really started doing that work. And if I had been able to do it at 15, forget 20, if I were able to start, if I had somebody talking to me about it when I was 10, you know, in words that I could understand, it would have made such a difference in my life. And, you know, 
I, I always look at my life. I've done a lot and I'm, I, you know, but I always thought, geez, Howard, you're, you're more capable than what you give yourself credit for. Even today, I, I just believe I can do more. I can serve more people, you know. Howard, we are we are down to the final question. Before I get there, I'd like our community to have an opportunity to say thank you. One of the, my favorite stories you shared today is about how a barista can elevate the life of another human being. And gratitude matters and writing things down matter and sharing that love matters. So I'd like our community, as I ask this final seventh Live Inspired question, to share a little bit of love and a little bit of gratitude to our friend, Howard Bihar. And the final question, Howard, for you, as they write their notes on coffee cups and slips and bags, is this, Howard Bihar, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? He set out to nurture and inspire the human spirit, and guess what he did? <laughs> Howard Bihar, Bihar, it was a fairly ambitious plan when you only had 24 stores to change the world, and yet you've done exactly that. I want to thank you for not only living well when you were in your 40s, but finishing strong today. It is incredibly inspiring, and you continue to change the world through your life today. John, can I leave everybody with one small thing? Please. Uh, I'm open to anybody at any time. Here's my cell phone number, 206-972-7776. And my email address is hb at howardbihar.com. I'm a little slow on getting back sometimes, but I'll always return a call or an email. So my friends, that is a first for us here at Live Inspired. We had one other participant do that. Her name was Edie Varley. Now we've got a second, a phenomenal leader named, named Howard Bihar who just shared his cell phone and his email address with the world. So uh, if that doesn't show you his humility, his humanity, and his desire to change the world one life at a time, I'm not sure what will. So Howard, thank you for being our friend. Thank you for living the message. Thanks, John. My friends, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Nourish the world and live inspired.